Can we talk something else? Can we talk about something else? Getting up at 5 a.m. isn't easy, but once you're sipping from a warm mug, there really isn't much pain left in the situation. Just get up early and make yourself something warm to drink, tea, coffee, whatever, and sit down to think. That's it. That's how you win the day. That's how you change your life. Next, you'll be writing down goals. Soon, you'll be waking up the birds with your running shoes. We stumble into the day too often. We're not ready for it. But when you get up early, give yourself some time to gather your wits, you've created a mental safety net that will continuously bounce you forward through your day. Every time something negative happens, you'll still have that start that you can reset upon. No matter how bad it gets, you can always say, Hey, at least I got up, got ready, got set this morning. At least I meant the day. It didn't just jump me this time. I used to have a drug problem, still do on occasion, but I'm starting to realize that I've always just been searching for meaning. Everything feels like it has more meaning when you're high. In traffic, on your way to work, life sucks. Hungover, changing a shitty diaper. Not the most beautiful thing. But when you're high, locked away from responsibilities, it's all so clear. Until morning. That's why, again, you have to win the day by your start. You can't steal it with a bottle at dusk or a line of coke at midnight. You have to get a good start. The jump on it. It took me 25, 30 years to figure this out. To realize a good start isn't just for farmers or athletes. It should be for anyone who finds their days difficult. Every time, I'm telling you, every moment that goes aflame during your day is immediately extinguished with the thought of that good start you made. You become protective of it. You want to grow the feeling of progress. At the very least, guard it from being wasted or ruined. Wasted or ruined. That was my way. Forever. Like if I did the damage, no one else could. But it's still damage. The forthcoming dark topic reminded me of my time spent sitting on a windowsill, smoking crack, selling pills, looking down over a strip club's back alley, trying to steal the day. It reminded me of an old friend and a dark game he played with me one night while we traded a pipe, chain-smoking out onto that filthy backdrop below a supermoon. At least that's how I remember it. The question was, how many people did I think I could kill within an hour and not get caught? He gave me some time with it, time that I didn't really need but used anyways because this was fun. I figured if I did it on Halloween, with a stun gun, a knife, and a silence pistol, beginning at 9pm and finishing at 10, I could kill at least 50 people, and possibly get away with it. I'd behave as a late night ghoul dressed like Jason Voorhees, 
stun gunning those who answered the door, then stabbing them to death while handling anyone else with a silenced pistol once I'd sealed the entrance to further muffle the shots. Those things aren't as quiet as the movies make them seem. I'd have a trick-or-treat bag full of ammo. I thought that if I moved quick enough, I could do some serious damage in that hour, kill a neighborhood, and become infamous. He liked my answer, found it entertaining, was hopping up and down the whole way through, excited that someone would play such a game with him, perhaps. Though he informed me that 50 was ambitious with such a plan, that people don't die like how in video games or movies which did not prompt me to ask how he knew that for certain, which I I think is one reason why these types always open up to me. Still do. Darktopicpod at (laughs) gmail.com He expressed his disappointment that I hadn't considered poisoning a water supply or blowing up a Walmart. Then, after we screwed with a homeless guy using a laser pointer for a bit, got yelled at by a biker who was curious as to what the fuck we were looking at, we smoked some more, and he told me the story of America's first known spree killer. A man who'd woken up early to win the day and only managed to kill 13 people within the hour. And he was a trained killer. Welcome to Dark Topic. I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is episode 015, The Walk of Death. difficult to determine when the first mass murder in the U.S. took place, maybe even impossible. Before settling on the word mass, multiple killings that happened at one time were described in a number of ways. Spree, bloodbath, carnage, slaughter. The earliest recorded mass killings date back to the 1300s, with the slaughter of Indians by colonists and of colonists by Indians. Casualty rates in some cases reached into the thousands. But these instances were perpetrated by several killers, which is in opposition to what we know as mass murder today, a person who kills four or more people in a single incident. One of the earliest of what would by today's definition be considered a mass killing made headlines in the 1700s. Barnett Davenport, 19, was executed in 1780 for the bludgeoning deaths of Caleb and Jane Mallory, their seven-year-old grandson David, and the murders of their granddaughters Eliza and Eunice, that latter of which were burned alive when, in a bid to hide his crime, Davenport set fire to the family's rural Connecticut home. The beginning of the story's end came when old man Mallory took in young Barnett Davenport after hearing a story of woe from the ragged and penniless stranger whose manner made him seem much younger than his age. The boy's story of being alone in the world appealed to Mallory's kind heart. So the generous old man offered the scoundrel shelter in the home he shared with his wife and his three young grandchildren, orphaned when their father died at sea. For three months, young Davenport played the role of grateful soul, all the while plotting to execute the family just for the thrill of it. Once the deed was done, an exhausting task he recounted in morbid detail after his arrest, he hid out for five days before being caught in a nearby town with his bounty of forty pounds, the wedding rings he'd ripped from the Mallory's dead fingers, a silver watch, and some shillings. Had it not been for the four men who saw the midnight flames, Davenport's attempt to hide his crime may have worked. When the townspeople arrived at the scene, the fire was too hot to enter the first floor, but hadn't yet reached the second. 
The men placed a pole against the house and two shimmied into a second-story window. There they discovered the smashed corpses, untouched by the flames, of Caleb, Jane, and little David. They were only able to hand out the bodies of the old man and the boy before the flames began to eat away at the second floor, forcing them to escape with burns themselves. As the crowd gathered in a February snowstorm around the mutilated bodies, a shriek was heard from the back of the home. The onlookers could only watch in horror as the eldest of the two girls, a mere six years old, hung her head out the second-story window before being consumed by the fiery torrent. Just three months after the murders, confession, and conviction, Davenport was hanged before the largest crowd of spectators to ever have assembled for an execution in New England history, on a road that still today bears the name Gallows Lane. Davenport's case is often pointed to as the first mass murder in U.S. history. Though multiple killings were noted in local papers as the calendar marched on, it wouldn't be until the mid-20th century when one of the first modern mass murders, perpetrated by a quiet man bent on a reckoning, was born into the collective minds of a nation. On this unpretentious corner in Camden, New Jersey, took place a tragedy unmatched in U.S. history. Veteran Howard Unruh left his room at 9.30 a.m. Half an hour later, 12 people were dead, a 13th dying. In a brown wool suit, a striped bow tie tucked beneath his shaved chin, the always dapper Howard Unruh filled his pockets with ammo made in his basement armory, grabbed a souvenir German Luger he bought from a Philadelphia sporting goods store, and strode out the door of his Camden, New Jersey home. It was about 9.20 a.m., Tuesday, September 6th of 1949. Unruh's belly was full of breakfast prepared by his doting mother. His soul was full of vengeance. The six-foot-tall former soldier walked across an overgrown lot, made his way along a short alley, and stepped into the sunlight of River Avenue. Marked for death were the cobbler, the barber, the druggist, and the tailor. The rest were collateral damage. A surprise even to the man who'd plotted this death march for hours as he'd sat alone inside a darkened movie theater. Rumor has it Howard wasn't supposed to be alone on that night. He'd intended to meet up with a man he'd been seeing for weeks, but traffic across the Benjamin Franklin Bridge into Philly was heavy. By the time he arrived, his date was in the wind. Theories vary on what turned this mild-mannered 28-year-old pharmacy student into a wholesale killer. His brother said he suffered from war neuroses after returning four years earlier from combat in World War II. Unruh's journals revealed he was a closeted gay man, angry he had to live out a secret life in sexual tryst at a nearby boarding house. The man himself told police that he did it because someone had stolen the gate from his backyard. That was the final insult he was willing to endure from those on the block who openly mocked and, he thought, whispered about him. But no matter the motivation, in just 12 minutes, 13 men, women, and children would be left dead or dying in his wake. Known as Howe by his high school buddies, called Old Dignified by neighbors who wondered about the odd Bible-toting young man with the ramrod posture, Howard Unruh would escape the electric chair after being declared insane. He lived to the ripe old age of 88, a diagnosed schizophrenic, in a room with no view, 
in a building called Vroom and an asylum for the criminally insane. A fitting home for a man described in news reports at the time as having shattered the, quote, speed record in mass killing. All right, everybody, Badlands food. I've been thinking about getting a dog with my little family. We are about to introduce a dog, I believe, at some point here. And I have an interest in how we're going to be treating said dog. And it occurs to me, you know, that many dogs suffer from health issues. And with Badlands food, actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. She's looking at their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that by just adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step step how anyone could do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. It caught my attention, and as I'm about to uh, get a dog, I think that I'm going to uh, use this service, so I thought I'd share it with the audience as well. Uh, I know many of you have dogs. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash darktopic and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash dark topic to check it out. Badlandsfood.com For 15 years, Howard and his mother Frida lived in a three-room apartment over a vacant shop. Anru's younger brother James had only recently married and moved to a neighboring town. Still just minutes from the bridge that crossed the Delaware River and poured motorists from Jersey into Philadelphia. Their father had abandoned Frida and the boys a decade before. There was just one door to their apartment at 3202 River Avenue, and it was at the back of the building. When neighbor Maurice Cohen, with whom the Unruh shared a wall, was being friendly, he allowed the quiet, lanky, hollow-cheeked Howard to cut a few steps through his yard to 32nd Street. When the Cohens, in particular Rose Cohen, were angry with Howard because he allegedly slammed the gate or played his music too loud into the night, they forbid the use of their yard, forcing the Unruhs to walk through an overgrown lot and around two buildings before reaching the street. Howard would recount this insult as such. Quote, She was always talking about me and very belligerent towards me and seemed to take pleasure in bawling me out in front of people in public. One time she told a woman she could see something was wrong with me, just by looking at my eyes. In an effort to stem the rising tensions, Mrs. Unruh had asked a friend to cut an opening in the back fence surrounding their inner city yard. That same evening, the new gate went missing. This caused the seeds of discontent in Howard to blossom into a seething garden. He decided the previous evening, through three showings of a double feature that he took in alone, to take the taunts and whispers no longer. He intended to do some weeding. Just like the motive, the order of the killings varies depending on who's telling the story. Anru told police that he started with the shoemaker. And so shall we. Upon reaching the street through a damp little alley alongside the newly built shoe repair shop, 
Unruh turned left into the building on the hunt for Joe Pilichik. He was angry with the cobbler. Construction of the building had caused rainwater to seep into Unruh's basement shooting range. When he told Pilichik, the man promised to fix the problem but never did. Because the shoemaker and barber had recently told him they were going to give him a chance to use my gun, he suspected they'd stolen the gate. As he stepped inside the shop, he pulled the Luger from his pocket. The 27-year-old cobbler, in business just three months, had nary a second to react before Unruh marched to his workbench and fired one shot, then pumped a second homemade round into Pilichik's skull. Under truth serum, during his interrogation, Unruh recounted the moment. Quote, I had leveled the gun at him. Neither of us said nothing, and I pulled the trigger. He had a funny look on his face, staggered back and fell to the floor. I realized then he was still alive, so I fired into his head. This wasn't the first time Unruh had killed. In his bedroom, police found Unruh's journals containing not only his sexual forays and list of perceived slights from neighbors, but meticulous accountings of the wrecked corpses of Nazis he'd slaughtered as an artilleryman. With the cobbler erased, Unruh exited the building and headed for the adjoining barbershop. In a few strides, he was past the rotating barber's pole and inside the bustling salon. School was about to start for the year. Boys and their mothers were sitting in chairs along the wall, waiting their turn for haircuts. Clark Hoover, 33, was halfway through shearing the hair of six-year-old Oris Smith. The boy, called Bruz by his mama, was atop a hobby horse bolted to the floor for the shop's littlest patrons. With Mother Catherine Smith watching, Unruh stepped to the horse and pulled the trigger of the pistol pressed against her little boy's chest. Next... Unruh aimed at his initial target. He later told psychiatrists that the barber, quote, dodged around the barber chair, making it difficult for me to get a clear shot. But I finally hit him, walked over, and then shot into his head. If the first shot was thought by some in the working-class neighborhood to be a car backfiring, the second and third proved it was much more. The sound, combined with the exodus of boys and mothers tumbling over each other to escape the shop, alerted witnesses to what was underway. A shrieking Catherine Smith scooped up her destroyed baby, the barber's bib still cinched around his neck. The New York Times report described the scene as such. The veteran made no attempt to kill Mrs. Smith. He did not seem to hear her screams. He turned his back and stalked out unhurried. A few doors north, Dominic Latella, who runs a little restaurant, had come to his shop window to learn what the shooting was about. Then he saw Mrs. Smith stagger out with her pitiful burden. Her son's head lolled over the crook of her right arm. Mrs. Smith screamed, My boy is dead. I know he's dead. She stared about her, looking in vain for aid. No one but Howard Unruh was in sight. Bruz, who was to start the first grade the following day, did not survive. Unruh then walked 50 feet, next appearing at the doorway of the River Avenue Pharmacy where his nemesis Cohen was king. In the threshold, Unruh, which translates to unrest in German, encountered insurance agent James Hutton, 45. The two knew one another, and Hutton, startled by almost running into Unruh, exclaimed, Hell, Howard. Ever polite, the madman quietly uttered, Excuse me, I'm sorry. 
But Hutton, perhaps a smile of confusion curling his lips and unruised coolness, moved a millisecond too slow. His departure from this planet came on the tip of a slug pumped into his head. Later, Unruh told police, That man didn't act fast enough. He didn't get out of my way. By the time Unruh entered the store, pharmacist Maurice Cohen must have known his usually timid neighbor was a stone-faced killer. Most reports indicate that as the silent Unruh stalked him, Cohen scrambled up the stairs into his apartment, shouting for his wife and mother to hide. The pharmacist ran onto a porch roof. His wife shoved their 12-year-old son Charles Cohen into one closet and she hid in another. The boy later recalled, My mother got hold of me in my bed, pushed me in a closet and locked the door. I lay in the closet until I didn't hear any more shooting. Cohen's 63-year-old mother was in a bedroom trying to call the police when Unruh ended her life. Then he shot into the closet, ending Rose Cohen too. Unruh then spotted his target on the roof and leaned out the window, a bullet hitting Cohen as he fell to 32nd Street, one story below. I had an idea in the back of my mind that Mr. Cohen was butting into my business. Had built up in the back of my mind that he'd been saying things about me. Though only wounded, the pharmacist had no time to escape. Unruh was street-side in moments, delivering a second fatal gunshot into his head. A photograph published in the Saturday Evening Post shows Rose Cohen lying on her back on the carpeted floor next to a dresser. She looks beautiful in death. Blood soaks the left shoulder of her white sweater. Her dark curls have fallen away from her porcelain face. Two police officers kneel beside her. One is holding the dead woman's wrist in his fingers as if to feel for a pulse. Another widely publicized photo taken before Unruh's surrender shows two armed officers on the roof Cohen had jumped from. The caption states they are about to lob tear gas into Unruh's apartment. Another officer stands on the street, his eyes and weapon trained on the building. Behind him is a dead Maurice Cohen, in slacks and a white button-down shirt, sprawled face down in the street. The pharmacist's hands are beneath him. His head is partly in the road. Inside the Cohen apartment, police will find the unharmed Charles in a closet, The boy will grow into a father and grandfather, dying in 2009. 69 years after he survived a mass shooting, his granddaughter, a senior at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, would also survive a shooting in the same way, by hiding in a closet. With the Coens dispatched, Unruh reloaded the pistol, then calmly made his way into the 32nd Street home of Madeline Harry and her 16-year-old son, Armin. Unruh let off several shots, but the Harrys fought him, and he fled, leaving them only wounded. The walk of death next saw Howard Unruh on the intersection of 32 and River Avenue, where the Cohen Pharmacy occupied the corner. Alvin Day, 24, who'd been driving past, slammed on his brakes at the sight of the insurance agent lying on the sidewalk. For Day's act of humanity, Unruh reached his pistoled hand inside the vehicle and shot him in the head. Charles Peterson, 18, who also attempted to help the hopeless Hutton, was repaid for his kindness with a gunshot wound. He survived. Then, the stoic gunman made his way back up the street. The curtains in a window fluttered as he passed 3208 River Avenue, and Unruh fired two shots, striking two-year-old Thomas Hamilton between the eyes. Eleven days shy of his third birthday, 
the toddler fell dead at his pregnant mother's feet. A little cowboy outfit, wrapped and waiting for his party, would never be worn. In one more month, he'd have been a big brother to a baby sister. Just past the Hamiltons and the barbershop and the cobbler, on the right side of the alley that birthed evil onto the street this day, Unruh stepped into the tailor's shop at 3214 River Avenue. His target, haberdasher Tom Zagrino, was off running an errand. In his stead, Zagrino's bride of three weeks, Helga, 28, was tending the shop. Just five minutes after opening the business for the day, her first customer walked in. Unruh made a robotic beeline for the tailor's wife as she covered and begged for her life. The school teacher's pleas were forever silenced by this madman. Across River Avenue, bar owner Frank Engel and his patrons were locked inside 3209 River Ave. The armed Engel had stationed himself in an upstairs window. When Unruh stepped from the tailor shop into the sunlight again, Engel fired off a single round. He thought he hit his target, but Unruh barely flinched. Engel didn't fire again. He told the New York Times, quote, I wish I had. I could have killed him then. I could have put a half dozen shots into him. I don't know why I didn't do it. Later, after a two-hour interview with police, everyone, even Unruh, would discover Engel had hit his mark. The county prosecutor told reporters that as Unruh stood to be taken to a jail cell, they saw his chair was soaked in blood. An exam at the hospital found a bullet lodged in his hip. Stepping away from the tailor shop, Unruh turned his attention to a grocery store across the street. When he found the door locked, he turned back to the road. A car stopped for the red light held three generations of the Matlock family. Unruh shoved his gun inside an open window. Dead in an instant, the last to die in this day, were 37-year-old Helen Matlack Wilson and her 68-year-old mother, Emma Matlack. Also shot was Helen's nine-year-old son, John, who had survived the night only to die early the following day. The boy had been sitting between his mother and grandmother in the front seat as the trio headed to Emma's doctor's appointment. The grandmother had been ill. Only her daughter knew she was dying of cancer. With his ammunition spent and the sound of police sirens closing in, Unruh made his way back into his apartment. In the moments before the rampage, he had had some type of confrontation with his mother. By some accounts, he'd threatened her with a wrench, and she fled to her sister's home nearby. There, she told of how strange her son's eyes looked and how worried she was about him. As Mrs. Unruh was coddled by her sister, police were closing in on her boy. Newspaper reports quote Howard Unruh's mother as relaying, He didn't mean to do it. He didn't mean to do it. I'm sorry. For everybody. I heard shots. I screamed because I had a feeling I knew who was firing those shots, but... But they told me someone was shooting rats. I knew differently. Dozens of cops descended on the hamlet. Thousands of onlookers did too. With survivors pointing out the dead or dying, littering the city block, the cops surrounded the Unruh apartment. Some were on the roof. Others were crouched in the garden or behind cars on River Avenue. The rifles, Tommy guns, and pistols trained on the apartment windows. It wouldn't be long before a police officer would toss tear gas into Unruh's bullet-shattered window. Inside the apartment, a phone was ringing. On a whim, a reporter from the Camden Courier-Post looked up the Unruh phone number and dialed it just after 10 a.m. Unruh reportedly answered in a calm, clear voice. 
from the Courier Post account. This Howard? Yes, this is Howard. Unruh? Who are you and what do you want? I'm a friend. I want to know what they're doing to you down there. They haven't done anything to me yet. I'm doing play to them. How many have you killed? I don't know yet. I haven't counted them, but it looks like a pretty good score. Why are you killing people? I don't know. I can't answer that yet. I'm too busy. I'll have to talk to you later. A couple of friends are coming to get me. Unruh was indeed busy. Tear gas was filling his bedroom where his walls were covered in cross pistols, German bayonets, pictures of armored artillery in action. The bedroom was a museum of war. Scattered about were machetes, ashtrays made of German shells, clips of 30-30 cartridges, and a host of varied souvenirs of battle. While Unruh may have purchased some of those things just because he liked them, he said he bought the machete with a specific job in mind. I bought it for the purpose of decapitating Cohen and his wife. As the tear gas began to make it impossible to breathe, a barrage of police gunfire rained down on the apartment, piercing the stuccoed walls around him. At the first lull in the action, Unruh appeared at the window in defeat. Okay, he shouted. I give up, I'm coming down. Where's that guy? A sergeant yelled. It's on my desk up here in the room. Unruh called down quietly. I'm coming down. A few seconds later, the shabby back door opened and Unruh stepped into the light, his hands up. Sergeant Earl Wright tramped across the morning glory and asked her beds in the yard and snapped handcuffs on Unruh's wrists. One furious cop demanded to know, What's the matter with you? You a psycho? Unruh flatly replied, I am no psycho. I have a good mind. And just like that, it was over. From beginning to end, the horror meted out on River Avenue by a man who never drank, swore, or smoked had lasted just 45 minutes. Unruh had spent two eight-round clips, 16 loose rounds from his pocket, and one in the chamber. Though he'd plotted to use the machete to decapitate the Coens for their impudence, the pistol proved deadlier. Less than a week after the slaughter, in the same mysterious way it had disappeared, police noted Unruh's stolen gate had been returned to its hinges by an unknown culprit. That mystery has never been solved. Apparently, Howard Barton Unruh hadn't exacted his revenge. After all... When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.